in May 1992, Giovanni Falcone, one of Italy's most prominent anti-mafia judges at the time, was traveling along a highway in Sicily when a powerful bomb exploded, ripping the car to shreds. The blast killed Falcone, his wife, and three officers from their police escort. The Cosa Nostra wanted to end the work of Falcone and his colleagues, but it had the reverse effect. The assassination galvanized the whole country. It gave birth to a new generation of jurors, law enforcement officials, activists, journalists, scholars, and ordinary citizens determined to fight against the mafia. In the last episode, we talked about how entrenched the criminal actors are in Italy's society. But Italy today is very different from what it was almost exactly 30 years ago. The days of visceral violence, like the brutal killing of Falcone, are gone. It has a strong legislative framework against organized crime, multiple agencies to deal with this phenomenon, and a strong and thriving civil society. In fact, Italy is only one of nine countries in the world where both criminality and resilience scores are high. How did this happen? What's being done to deprive the mafia of their revenues? And what can other countries learn from Italy's experience? This is what we're going to talk about in this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thinlay Wynne. In this series, we'll take a deep dive onto the Global Organized Crime Index and take a look at some of the biggest organized crime threats facing countries and regions around the world. For this second episode on Italy, we've brought back the same experts, Anna Sergi, Professor of Criminology and Organized Crime at the University of Essex, and an expert on Andrangita, Luca Storti, Associate Professor of Economic Sociology at the University of Turin, as well as a visiting research fellow at King's College in London, and Monica Uzai, International Programme Coordinator at Libera, a network of associations that is fighting organized crime and corruption. I started by asking them to explain this paradox of Italy's high criminality and resilience scores. There is an old saying that basically we always uh, use um, in Italy and when we talk with others uh, outside of Italy, which is that you only see, obviously, what you want to see. So the more you see a phenomenon, obviously, the more you learn about it, the higher you tend to invest, the most you tend to invest in uh, in its countering. So it is not surprising to me to see that both, both scores are high because obviously the knowledge that we have on mafias and organizations organized crime more generally has led uh, to the combating of it. So if you don't see a phenomenon, uh, you might uh, fool yourself that you are scoring low, but obviously that also means you are not really reacting appropriately. So I think the two things go end in end. The more you know something, the more you can react to something. And then obviously there have been historical reasons uh, which I'm sure Monica can talk about more specifically that led to the, the birth of national uh, resistance phenomena like Libra and trying to get the most out of civil resistance in times when Italy history was particularly uh, shaped by mafia-related events in the, in the 90s. So I think the two things go hand in hand. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, Monica, could I just turn to you now? Because, you know, Anna mentioned your organization as well. And of course, one of the uh, uh, very important aspects of resilience, you know, to organized crime is, is, is with the civil society and Libera is a leading member of it. Can I ask the same question to you again in terms of whether you're, you know, surprised that Italy's resilience scores are high? And also just briefly tell us about the history of Libera. I agree with Anna, and uh, we are not surprised related to the increasing of the phenomenon on the end and uh, our strength on the other. So it's something that, as she was saying now, it's uh, really connected with the history of our country and uh, the history of our association and the network of our association that is our strength in particular. Libra born in 1995 formally, and after a big movement against the violence, uh, the criminal violence, in specific in Sicily and the Campania regions where Camorra and Cosa Nostra were 
particularly violent in that years, but it's something really connected with the past too. So with some in particular uh, politicians, as for instance, Piola Torre, that just a few days ago was his uh, anniversary for uh, its mother and uh, the role of some politicians, but in general, uh, syndicalists too, uh, in our history. It's something that we uh, remember day by day with our actions, with our memory uh, actions in particular, that the strength of Libera related to the our network is relying on uh, it's this kind of action. In 1995, we were born with a lot of uh, organizations, churches, schools, associations, and uh, it's something that today we are pretty singular in the war for this kind of uh, shape that we gave to this kind of movement. And it's something that uh, is uh, our strength because we are able now to uh, resist to this kind of criminal action. And history, it's a brief history because 30 years uh, for an organization, it's not so much. But we know that we get a lot of results today to say that we are part of this kind of resistance. Thanks so much, Monica. I do want to come back to you uh, on some of the things that Libera has been doing, but I just want to bring in, Luca, um, some of your thoughts. You've been looking at this issue for quite a while as well, and your thoughts on the resilient school. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Anna and Monica have already uh, said that there is a sort of intriguing nexus between action and reaction, which is now between mafia presence and resilience on the other side. So let me just add a a very general, theoretical, let me say, remark. Uh, It's kind of a contradiction, but um, understandable, nevertheless, uh, I would say. I think that mafia has uh, often been conceived of as a a heritage of premodernity, really often, at least in the past. Another um, idea uh, related to this hypothesis was that the economic development would have cancelled mafia groups. But that's absolutely a superficial explanation of the phenomenon. Uh, We have seen, indeed, that mafia groups are really able to establish themselves in uh, uh, economic contexts that are pretty innovative and rich, such as the US, etc., so, um, modernity and socioeconomic uh, evolution uh, uh, are not a unique and uh, linear path, so to speak. And so, we have a lot of contradictions within complex societies, complex uh, uh, economic contexts. And so, uh, it's a paradox, maybe, but we can figure out context in which we might have uh, strong mafia groups, but also institutions that somehow can react, uh, that can produce uh, uh, agencies that are able to fight organized crime groups. And unfortunately, both both aspects can be present in complex societies. Mm, and I want to pick up on that uh, talk about the institutions. You know, we talked a little bit just now about Libera. But Anna, I want to ask you to look at the official response to organized crime. And Italy seems to have created a fairly strong legislative framework against this phenomenon. Um, apparently, the country scores eight when it comes to national policies and laws. Can you tell us a little bit about how that come about and whether this framework has actually been effective? Uh, Okay, so the Italian history of policies against the mafia is a reactive one, unfortunately, or probably normally, I guess. So most of our anti-mafia legislation that the world envies us today is based on emergency legislation, which was passed after extremely emotive and uh, problematic events, obviously, after murders, after violence, especially linked to Cosa Nostra at the beginning. Most of our legislation came essentially in in a very, I would say, Italian fashion uh, with um, basically uh, quickly uh, activate those mechanisms that the law allows uh, to pass uh, whatever legislation is needed and then eventually recognize it as uh, legitimate and as fully operational only later. So a lot of this emergency legislation, which for us um, started, obviously, uh, since the early 80s onward, is based on two main pillars, which probably have changed the way 
in which we we can understand the anti-mafia arsenal overall. Uh, one is obviously the anti-mafia um, legislation, as in the Criminal Code, Article 416 bis of the Criminal Code, which was passed in 1982. Turn to you briefly. What about in terms of shortcomings and gaps in the legislative frameworks or from the actions of the law enforcement agencies? I mean, are there any? I mean, how can they be improved? Well, that's a very difficult question. As Anna already said, we will maybe have the chance to come back to, to this point. There are actually several agencies 
in Italy uh, fighting against organized crime uh, groups and especially mainly against mafia uh, groups. I don't think we need new agencies. I don't think we need right now uh, new crimes uh, in our code. Uh, We should work maybe more on the issues regarding coordination between uh, uh, agencies. Since the country is actually a pretty complicated country in terms of socioeconomic differences at the territorial level, and uh, it's pretty complicated in terms of different uh, institutions' uh, frameworks. So I think we have to try to push forward the coordination between anti-mafia agencies. This should be maybe one of the main goals that we need to pursue in order to uh, make the fight against mafia groups even more effective than it is right now. So again, not new agencies, it's okay that the ones we have, uh, we can innovate the way through which they they cooperate with each other. Yeah, and just to follow up on what you said about, you know, the different agencies that Anna mentioned, do you want to just briefly add to any of the different agencies and and their, you know, roles and responsibilities? I mean, there are a a bunch of agencies, and I think uh, a good research topic would be to map these agencies and analyze how they cooperate and they compete, thus giving rise to a sort of organizational field. But uh, briefly speaking, uh, Anna has already said that we have the Anti-Mafia Prosecutors Directorate, which is a national body coordinating uh, prosecutors dealing with uh, mafia issues, with an organization that rely upon the public prosecutor's offices at the territorial and local level. Okay, it's much more complicated, but more or less this is the way through which it works. Uh, Another uh, really relevant agency that we can bring into the scene is the Anti-Mafia Investigation uh, Directorate, uh, which is a police multi-force body, which is made up uh, of Carabinieri, Polizia di Stato e Guardia di Finanza. Uh, and the Anti-Mafia Investigation Directorate uh, works with the Anti-Mafia Prosecutors Directorate in um, carrying out the investigations about mafia groups. Uh, and then we uh, have to remember another agency, or actually it's, it's a proper institution, uh, uh, which is relevant to mention, uh, which is the Italian um, uh, Parliamentary Anti-Mafia uh, Commission, which is a bicameral uh, commission of the uh, Italian parliament, composed of um, members from the uh, chambers of deputies uh, and the Senate. And actually, the main uh, goal of the uh, commission is to analyze, uh, study uh, the phenomenon of organized crime uh, in its different forms and to which is another important point, and to try at least to measure the existing anti-crime measures, if they work, if they don't work, um, weak and strong points, uh, to um, work on the legislative and administrative uh, uh, anti-mafia measures and to look at the results they they produce. Uh, Theoretically, then it's a Bicameral commission, so it's a really complicated uh, institution which has had good um, and rich season and other seasons have been uh, less uh, successful. But anyway, it's another relevant institution to to, to mention and to bring in this uh, complex and rich field of agencies that are involved in the fight against mafia. Thanks for that, Luca. Um, Anna, just very briefly turning to you, I have quite a few questions for Monica, but I just following on from from what Luca said, I think this is a natural progression. You know, we talked about lots of different law enforcement agencies and all that sort of stuff. But are there any concerns about the mafia infiltrating these agencies? Has there been examples of that? Yes and no. I mean, there are obviously, there are always concerns. And more importantly, I wouldn't say infiltrating is really the concern, but rather the leaking of uh, crucial evi- crucial information. So we, we have, for example, at the moment, uh, just off the top of my head, and by all means not representative necessarily, 
in the maxi trial Renascita Scott, one of the people who is facing trial is a lawyer and his main charge is actually to have, have exploited his position as lawyer and have informed on investigative material that he shouldn't have uh, uh, shared with anyone, uh, but apparently it, it, the charges that he did, uh, and he did so to uh, support the mafia boss uh, that he was actually defending. So that that is one of the main, uh, let's say, problems that we have, that obviously we have not necessarily mafia infiltrating, but all the um, people who are supporting in different positions Mafia businesses and mafia affairs who might have access uh, normally through their job and their work. So there, there are obviously ways in which this can be avoided. Um, one of the many things that have been done um, is to essentially create a system of a Russian law system where essentially not uh, only a few people can access certain type of information, but it's obviously very difficult if you are talking about lawyers and people who are involved in the trial in the first place. There have been in the past, uh, not that I recall in the most recent uh, periods, some particularly nasty accusations to judges, uh, magistrates specifically, of favoring uh, certain mafia figures um, rather than others. But as I said, this is, I would say this is normal, unfortunately, normal in the sense of expected in certain uh, contexts. But we have a very strong judiciary. Uh, and the problem of the judiciary in Italy is not necessarily, with mafia trials, is not necessarily one of infiltration, uh, the way I see it. I think it's more one of a misunderstanding of the damage um, that, let's say, wrongful conviction or wrongful solution can have. So I think if it, to me, the infiltration is, is really just, is really something to be wary when it comes to the professions. Uh, so, as I said, the lawyers and uh, obviously um, in certain contexts also lawyers not just working for the families, but in the families. And obviously that is one of the issues. I, I remember, again, off the top of my head, a woman who is the daughter of a, a very important, unfortunately for her, mafia boss in Reggio Calabria. And she was trying really, really hard to dis detach herself from the family. She studied law. She wanted to become a judge. And she they didn't let her because of her surname. And their, um, I mean, she did become eventually a judge. Uh, she did pass the exam, but they, they wouldn't let her work in Reggio because of her surname. And obviously the, the, the fear that even if she was well-intentioned, uh, she couldn't be, you know, she could be easily manipulated. So there are there are ways in which we things have been somewhat kept under check, and obviously no system is impenetrable. Yeah, and and I actually want to pick up on that judicial system point actually, um, and 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 get a sense of whether corruption plays a role in there as well, because you know obviously Italy has a reputation for being somewhat corrupt. In fact, Italy scores quite low, five out of 10, when it comes to government transparency and accountability and the judicial system. And you just talk about just now, you, you know, you briefly talked about some of the, the, the concerns and the difficulties around it. Does corruption play a role? And, you know, does that affect efforts to crack down on the mafia? Yeah, judicial corruption is uh, not something that has been studied uh, that much in Italy. Uh, unfortunately, there have been. It, it, it's difficult to access uh, data, of course, on this on this topic. So that's uh, we do know about it only when we have you know media reports on that. So it's very difficult to you know to to see how systemic it is and to understand how problematic it is. There are, however, some notable cases. I mean, also in um, there is one trial now that I'm following uh, in Reggio Calabria and. Um, I wouldn't say fortunately or unfortunately, but the, there was a judge uh, who is now died, who died. So I don't know whether, you know, we won't know much about him anymore. But he was a very prominent judge in the Court of Cassation working in Calabria. And he's been, uh, before he died, he was accused of external mafia association and the, the charges against him and the evidence against him were extremely difficult to, to defend. So it, apparently 
that started as corruption. So that, that, that was an interesting thing because obviously he started with an approach to, you know, to do something against his office. So with a bribery, essentially with bribery, but eventually turned out into something more systemic, uh, which eventually led to the charge of external mafia association. So these cases, I think more than uh, in Italy, the, the, both prosecutors and magistrates. So um, I think the, the real issue has been uh, when this when judicial corruption comes to, you know, to the public domain with judging magistrates, uh, because they are the one obviously uh, more than the prosecutors that eventually decide on what's going to happen in a court of law. So corruption in this sense is, is, is a concern. But as I said, research-wise, I'm not sure there has ever been any specific topic that looks at issues, between, at the connections between uh, mafia trials and judicial corruption. Mm, mm, really interesting. Monica, I'm going to turn to you now for a few uh, questions. Um, we've talked about, you know, the official response, the law enforcement side, the judicial system. In terms of civil society, do you remember what it was like before Libra was set up? Or do you remember others talking about what the situation was like and whether the landscape has changed since then and how it has changed? Definitely, yes, it's changed. That's important to remember that uh, I was talking before related to a movement. So it was something in the past pretty connected with the 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 the, the, the the perspective of the people was to react, but not to structure something related to this kind of reaction. So the anti-mafia movement was something related to the street, to the demonstrations of the people. And um, just in few villages and uh, situations, it was really connected to some uh, activities structured and as examples for us today. Definitely today is something different because, uh, as I was saying before, we started to shape a network in the first part of our action. So in the first years uh, till uh, 2000, we were just uh, a national network. Then after also the, the role of uh, Libera in, uh, at international level too, so thanks to the Hantok Convention so and uh, in Palermo, and uh, it's something that we rem- remember also this year, and uh, the, ne- the need of the people to structure its, ex- its action also at local level, thanks to the role of the social use of confiscated assets, today is completely different. We are uh, connecting our role also in the world, and we are connecting our roles with other organizations too, thanks to a different kind of planning action. So it's completely different, but it's something that we need because we know as we said several times, the, the, the action of the criminal groups is completely different from the past two. So it's something that we really need. You mentioned just now the social reuse of confiscated assets. Now, that's one of the measures that you've been supporting, right, to deprive mafias of their revenues. Tell us a little bit more about how exactly this works and why is this important? Yeah, in 1995, Libra was born and launched uh, the first national campaign collecting signatures for a bill that could add an important piece to the Rognoni La Torre law. And uh, the social reuse of assets confiscated from the mafia and criminal groups in this way was the first pillar for us. Um, so after quite a year, on the 7th of March uh, of 1996, the law 109 appeared in the Gazzetta Ufficiale, official journal of our uh, in national authorities, and finally making civil society the protagonist of the fight against the mafia and uh, uh, and the criminal groups in this way. So through the possibility of the reappropriation of spaces and assets and creating new ones. So Libera, since that time, uh, does not directly manage the assets confiscated, just one in this case, that's our next uh, and future national bureau but promotes training and participatory planning to make them uh, resources able to trigger local development processes and uh, increase social cohesion too. So to achieve this important goal, Libera has created a network to multiply the the opportunities for the interaction between also the public subjects as uh, the promotion of the national agency in this way. It's it's 
pretty important for us. And uh, also the first sector organizations, so, so social cooperatives, cons- co- associations in general, social foundation. And uh, the main beneficiaries is important to highlight is of the project activities are voluntary or cooperation organi- yeah, cooperation organizations, which manage or intend to manage confiscated assets directly. So public actors directly or indirectly involved in the process of the destination and allocations. And uh, obviously the citizens who can uh, activate their civic monitoring and participatory design processes. I think that's what is representing for us the, the social use of confiscated assets. And has the civil society's perception of the mafia changed as well compared to when Libera was first set up and now? Yeah, definitely. You have to think that in the past, just till a few years ago, the people in Italy were thinking, were thinking that it was just a phenomenon related to the south of Italy. So in particular, where uh, we got the action of uh, Cosa Nostra, Camorra and, uh, and Andrangheta. So the, the, the regions from the south were really affected by this kind of phenomenon, but the north was uh, not in the same way. And uh, today is completely different. The people know the, the role of criminal groups also in the center, in the north of Italy, and uh, knows too that we got pretty connections and relations also at international level in this way. So it's completely different from the past, thanks also to, the, for instance, the, the role of culture, cultural assets that we have. So the, the cinema, the movies, the, the books, that all the culture that is connected also for the story, storytelling of this kind of phenomenon is pretty important today to have a different kind of perception. That's really interesting. Speaking of perception, Luca, uh, one of the things that Anna mentioned earlier, you know, in the conversation was about Giovanni Falcone and his assassination. How important was it that public came out strongly against the mafia after that? And do you think that sort of raised the resilience levels in the country? And did that, you know, help to sort of shape public perceptions around mafia in Italy? Yes, I, I, I think so. I think we can agree and claim that Giovanni Falcone's murder was a sort of turning point. It was not the end of the Mafia, uh, of course, but it was a turning point in terms of the perceptions, in terms of the reaction by public opinion, in terms of several reactions by uh, institutions uh, and so on. So things uh, have changed after that so yeah yeah i i think so i mean it, it has really been an, a, a a turning point uh, especially i would say uh, in terms of the perception about the connection between mafia groups uh, legal economy politicians civil servants and and so on it has been a turning point in terms of the perception about the fact that mafia uh, groups uh, are not only good in uh, running illegal business, they are really often good in establishing connection with the upper world. This has changed after uh, the tra- that tragic uh, event and after those tragic years at the beginning of the 90s. Thanks, Luca. I'm actually interested. We Obviously, we've talked about the failures and accountability and, and the resilience, but I'm also quite interested to hear if there are any recent examples of successful operations against the mafia. Would any of you be able to uh, talk about that? Anna, Monica in particular, do you have any examples? So I don't think that there is any specific one uh, because the problem with anti-mafia operations is that they are boasting or, you know, in, on the newspaper the moment they are carried out, the arrests and everything else, and then eventually they get lost in the very intricate and absolutely not up to standard um, mafia trials. <laughs> so the problem is that it's very difficult to follow from the beginning to the end uh, what is actually happening. So you might see, uh, you know, 300 arrests and 
and uh, this and that and confiscation, but then eventually how, how well they hold in the court of law is a whole different story. So I think that's something to remember. Uh, we are not that good at understanding how an operation starts and an operation ends. Uh, it gets really complicated. However, I think that there are uh, operations that more than others represent a success. And these are usually operations that come after years and years and years of attempts <laughs> to tackle certain areas, certain problems, certain issues. So we had, for example, Operation Crimine in uh, 2008, which ended uh, in very positive ways at trial in up until 2016, so it was a very long trial, of course, over 300 people, and that was the trial that defined the structure of the Ndrangheta, and it wasn't a revolutionary trial in the sense that we already knew pretty much everything that was already in that operation. However, the difference was that it was kept together, it was treated um as you know, a unitary phenomenon, the drangheta, and we managed to eventually prove in a court of law what the prosecutors before those who brought Crimine in were trying to do for the past 20 years. So Operation Crimine was a watershed because of that, not because it was revolutionary. The same goes, for example, for Operation Emilia, which was, which is, you know, uh, currently still at the end of its uh, its turn, is an operation with over 150, I think, defendants uh, in the northern region of Emilia-Romagna, which again is a you know it, it's one of the first successful operations in uh, in the north, in in that area especially, and it's kind of you know it, it symbolically shows, basically confirms the existence of the Ndrangheta there how much uh, they managed to confiscate, how much they managed to convict, that's a different story. And same thing for Rinascita Scott, the trial, the current maxi trial uh, that everyone is, uh, is so buzzed about uh, outside of Italy for the number of defendants that it has obviously on trial. The, there is nothing new nothing new about Rinascita Scott that we already didn't know. However, uh, what is new is that, again, it, it, it tells a story. It keeps paints a very, a much, much clearer uh, perspective and scenario over a province that was already hit by several different um, investigations, but never quite fully told as a unique tale. And lastly, I will finish with my favorite trial of the century, which is Operation, well, the trial Gotha, together with the trial Ndrangheta Stragista, which is currently still under, you know, with the courts in uh, Reggio Calabria. Those are by far my two favorite trials uh, because they bring to fruition something like 50 years of investigations. And they are not going, Ndrangheta Stragista is going very well. Gotha is not going that well in terms of, investi- of um, convictions. However, the, their legacy is explosive. They are basically rewriting the history of Italy, the history of Calabria, the history of the Ndrangheta in a way that for the first time shows uh, without a doubt that there is that the famous interconnection with the elite power, with the Masonic lodges, the deviant Masonic lodges, with uh, politics, with everything that we keep saying the mafias are about, it's right there. And so I think in that sense, narrating the story well is half the success of the most important uh, mafia trials. And obviously, conviction-wise, we need to be very, very careful to respect the, the rule of law here, and obviously the same for um, confiscation. I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. And I think it was really important of you emphasizing that just because you, you know, managed to raid an operation and, and arrest people doesn't necessarily translate into conviction or that people don't really follow through the whole story, right? We only see a small aspect of it. Luca, Monica, do you have anything to add in terms of, of, of what you see as successful examples? I would like just to add uh, something related to our role, in particular in uh, during the trials, because, for instance, uh, Anna was talking about also about one particular investigation called Emilia. Its first part is ended up in the few days ago. And um, something that is so important for us, it's our legislation uh, foresee also 
the role of the civic part during the trials. And it's something pretty particular also at international level, we know. Thanks to that, also our organization, together with other associations and schools, permitted to more than 3,000 guys from uh, the schools to stay uh, during the trial to assist also what was going on there. So it's a kind of support also for uh, the affected people from criminal groups. And uh, it's something that connects in a holistic way also the role of uh, judges and prosecutors together with civil society into the, the world of the institutions and authorities. And it's something that it's pretty particular because a few days ago, for instance, we were hosting some authorities from Holland that was, were asking us also what we can do to get the same thing also in our country because they need, they understood the need of the role of the associations and the civil society together with them to try to tackle this kind of phenomenon. So just to say that because it's, I agree with Anna that we, we got different kind of uh, situations. One where we, where we know that it's uh, not enough what we are doing, that's we need to do something more. It's pretty connected also with the harmonization of the international system to, of cooperation and judiciary cooperations, for instance, because uh, it's something where we get a kind of lack of this kind of um, reaction, but we got a lot of good instances to, to catch up, I guess. I just have two quick follow-up questions, Monica, and then we have a last question. First follow-up question, what are some of the biggest challenges um, that affect your work and what you do? I guess there is the consent, yeah, yeah, the, the consent of, of the people. So it's something not, not feasible. We are a great organization, quite big in, uh, at national level, but it's not enough. It's not enough because we know that uh, what we were saying the last time related to the criminal system, in particular to the perception of uh, and the fascination of the criminal groups for for the people, it's something that uh, represents for us a problem also because we get a lot of people that are not understanding that it's a challenge for us to, to try to tackle this kind of phenomenon. And it's urgent for us to don't have the same consequences that we get in the past. It's something that in some regions is particular, quite understood in particular, I, I can think uh, to the 21st of March of this year in uh, Naples, where we get there with more than 200,000 people to demonstrate at regional level the no to this kind of violence, but it's a particular region. And in other, other regions, we know that the challenge and the efforts are quite different. So... It's something that we are not tired, but uh, it's something that we need to face day by day. I guess it's the understanding that it is, it's a long-term struggle and it is a struggle for every single day, right? It, it, the work never ends. Um, second follow-up question, what do you think needs to be done more to improve the Italian strategy against the mafia? And where do you see you know, civil society organizations' role as? Well, we know that uh, it's pretty easy, <laughs> so we need the uh, political intention from the authorities and the institutions to tackle concretely this kind of phenomenon too. It's not just something that they can demand to the civil society organizations. And uh, we got a lot of things that we can improve into our legislations too. And uh, on the other end, one of the problems is, is pretty connected with resources, in particular economical ones, because when we talk about social reuse or confiscated assets, it's not something that you can let to these kind of civil, civil society organizations and cooperatives. You need to support also their role at uh, local and national level. And uh, what we are demanding is a concrete action also from the institutions in this way. It's not just something that we can rely in our laws. It's something that we need to put in a concrete pattern in our actions. Great. Thank you, Monica. Last question for all three of you, and I will start with Anna. What can other countries learn from how Italy has responded to organized crime. Is there anything other countries can learn? 
Uh, yes, uh, there is something that other country can, can, countries can learn, but it's probably uh, not uh, what I've heard from others. Uh, so I've worked a lot on policy transfer and um, to what extent the Italian anti-mafia system could be replicated or at the very least kind of understood, I think, uh, abroad, obviously. And I don't think, I do not advocate uh, the mafia association laws to be moved around the world or adopted uh, because it doesn't work. Uh, it simply doesn't. I think what we can learn, uh, what we can basically make an effort as Italians, as experts on, on Italy, forward is probably to learn that there is there are behaviours uh, that organised crime exhibit in each context. And those behaviours form a system. And that system, whichever way uh, you call it, whether it's mafia or it's gang or it's cartel, it doesn't really matter, is the behaviour of organisations that Italy is so well became so acquainted with in also in criminal law. So I think it, it, if there is one thing that we we can teach from a, a criminological perspective rather than a legal one is that there is no way of fighting organized crime without the contextual knowledge uh, of its behaviors and then uh, finding a way within the rule of law to, con- to to essentially contrast those behaviors and the systematization of them into an organization which is essentially what our, our anti-mafia law does uh, the second thing that i think should be could be easily uh, more easily adopted abroad is the confiscation uh, legislation. The confiscation legislation in Italy is very advanced for two reasons. One, the capability to uh, confiscate without the conviction, uh, which is a civil um, civil law, essentially, um, procedure, very similar to civil RICO uh, that they have in the United States. And that allows to essentially separate the follow the money track from the criminal conviction of the people who have um, the money in their disposal. I think that's a a peculiar thing that Italy has developed and it has developed it not just, you know, non-conviction-based confiscation, not just in Italy, but the way Italy does it with different uh, ways to tackle the proceeds of crime, also putting the the money at the centre of the investigation rather than attaching them to a specific person or a specific predicate crime, the way we call it, it's very unique. Most of the time you do need uh, for money laundering proceedings, for confiscation procedures in organized crime, you need to prove the connection, the nexus between a person, the money and the crime that produced that money. Uh, Italy has found a way to separate that and to essentially put the money at the center of the investigation without the need to uh, necessarily connected to people in crime. I think that's probably the one thing that is a bit more technical and I think it's it might be better suited. And obviously, as Monica was saying before, um, the, social, the social reuse of confiscated assets is something that Italy has, has done and it is something that Libera uh, is very much pushing at the European, on the European agenda. It's really something that I'm sure has had an echo. One of the things that has had an echo in France, it will have an echo in Switzerland soon, if it doesn't already, uh, Germany has started talking about it. So I think it's something that gives back, giving back to the community what was taken away from organized crime is something that Italy has learned to do. And by the way, we are not always that great at it. <laughs> there are millions of problems with the social reuse, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's a step in the right direction for sure. Oh, that's a great um, and very comprehensive answer. Luca, what can other countries learn from Italy? Yeah, I mean, there is a paradox here. I think that other countries have a lot to learn from Italy, but but Italy has nothing to teach at the same time. And uh, Anna, has, uh, as Anna said, I, I totally agree with her, uh, changing the criminal law system of a country uh, according to the Italian one, thus introducing the mafia belonging crime is not realistic and maybe not really uh, useful. So I agree with her and it's really um, relevant at the same time that other countries uh, think of having a new legislation in terms of confiscation of assets. And I would like to add that 
we might work on introducing more binational task forces uh, between Italy and other countries, and these kind of uh, task forces might be useful in order to run investigations and so on. It might be also useful to introduce a measure for um, preventing the flow of mafia capital into the legal economy and to have measure to trace funds, uh, which is not always the case uh, abroad. And lastly, uh, as for the presence of um, business in collusion with, with, with mafia groups, with, with mafiosi, or actually run by mafia groups in the legal economy, we need some sort of antitrust authorities uh, and such authorities uh, can establish uh, some criteria for defining so-called white lists, which means lists of firms that meet specific requirements, specific features, and can thus receive positive incentives and be uh, granted sort of preferential access to public contracts that can be uh, really useful in order to limitate the infiltration of mafia groups in the so-called legal economy. Thanks, Luca. Last but definitely not the least, Monica, final thoughts. What can other countries learn from Italy? The other countries are learning a lot from Italy till now. And during this year, we promoted a lot of projects. In particular, we can refer to two important projects that we are developing. One is in Argentina and one is in Albania, for instance, together with us to improve also the role of prosecutors and civil society together to promote the social use of confiscated assets. It's something uh, that we are pretty glad today to have in this way. And uh, we, we have also, thanks to the role of Libera in the past, promoted also at, for the advocacy uh, activities that we are promoting. Uh, we got a, a European directive that stressed also the role of confiscation and uh, the social use of confiscated assets also at European level. So it's something that we are concretely implementing today, thanks to the, the activities that we promoted till now. It's not enough, as we were saying before. It's uh, something that we need to improve day by day. I'm in the specific working uh, today in the sub-Saharan Africa, where we got a lot of inputs also from there to cooperate together also with the prosecutors in uh, where is it possible. And together with uh, the role of the rule of law at international level, we know that we got all the good purposes from also other organizations and civil society organizations together with us to face this kind of phenomenon too. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of The Index and to Anna, Luca and Monica for joining us today. If you want to read the country profile for Italy, it's available in the podcast notes, where you can also find a link to the Global Organized Crime Index. The Global Organized Crime Index lists 193 countries around the world, it scores their levels of criminality and resilience. It's a fascinating resource and can be accessed by anyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. That's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thilaewen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>